Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. Welcome, everybody. You're listening to the Sanctified Mind Podcast. I'm here with my buddies, Daniel and Ryan. Hello, hello, and this is the first time we are actually in the same location to record the podcast so we can look at each other while we talk. It's pretty great. It's a terrible idea. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. Yeah, so this week we're doing The Hidden Life of Prayer, The Lifeblood of the Christian by David McIntyre. This is a, it was a good book. I'll say a little bit about David McIntyre. He's not a very well-known, at least I did, I'd never heard of him before. He lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He was a minister. He was a teacher at a seminary. He was also the dean of the seminary. He wrote a lot of books. The thing that really stood out to me in the prologue in this, of this book when they were speaking about his life it said, yet he manfully gripped the reins and guided his affairs to the very end. He wished to die in the harness. Just talking about the end of his life, how he just served Christ his whole life and all the way till the end. I was thinking that's one way you could be remembered. That would be a good way for someone to describe you at the end of your life, that you held on to the reins and guided your affairs to the very end to die in the harness. So it's a good book. I'm looking forward to discussing it. Let's jump right in. So the first chapter is The Life of Prayer. The, the whole book is obviously on prayer. We were talking earlier and both said it's not too structured, so we're just going to kind of go through it and know what stood out to us. So what, what about the first chapter, guys? What stood out to you all? On basically the second page, uh, one of the first things that stuck out to me was the quote. It says, He who has a pure heart will never cease to pray, and he who will be constant in prayer shall know what it is to have a pure heart. And that's one of those things that the complementary nature of prayer really kind of was brought to life for me there by how how prayer complements a pure heart and a pure heart complements prayer. How prayer is one of those things that's a, a normal aspect of the, the means of grace that we're given. And while it doesn't have a, a salvific nature aspect of grace, it, it has a sanctifying means of grace in that by through prayer, we're sanctified by it. And it's a means of grace unto us from that. And that was, that was one of the first things that's been uh, talked about by my pastor a lot. Um, I've heard that you know, really looking at these normal means of grace that we have as Christians, I think a lot of times we take for granted. So that's one of the first things that was pretty interesting to me. Uh, yeah, and I also liked how he connected prayer back into the imagery of the Old Testament. On the very first page of that chapter, actually, one of the quotes he uh, mentions is how the high priest was a solitary worshiper who has entered within the veil and hushed and lowly in the presence of God, bends before the glancing Shekinah. This represents the hidden life of prayer of which the master spoke in the familiar words, Be thou, when thou prayest, enter into thine inner chamber, and having shut thy door, pray to thy father, which is in secret, and thy father, which seeth in secret, shall recompense thee. And I think that does a beautiful job of connecting how we as priests in the new covenant are vassals or people who also make sacrifices through our prayer, just as high priests made sacrifices in the Old Testament. So that was something that struck me immediately, actually. Yeah, in, in the first chapter here, I think he really set the course for the book, and it's called The Life of Prayer. That's something about this book, is there is just so many good quotes. It's just filled with good quotes. I mean, I will read it again, if for nothing else, but the quotes of godly men of the past talking about prayer and their prayer life. It's very valuable for that, but he talks about prayer being this, not just this idea of something you do, but prayer being something that becomes the lifeblood of the Christian. 
he says in the first chapter, he says, we do not know the true potency of prayer until our hearts are so steadfastly inclined to God that our thoughts turn to him as by divine instinct whenever they are set free from the consideration of earthly things. So we're just talking about spending so much time with God that naturally your thoughts and your heart turn to thoughts of God when you don't have responsibilities of work and other things on, on this earth. It's just your natural inclination. Prayer just becomes a natural lifestyle for you. And I thought that was a really good way to set the tone of what prayer is. And I know for, for me in, in my own walk, that's been probably the biggest weakness that, that I've had thus far is being constant in prayer. It's it's something that just doesn't come as easy to me as it should. And this book was very much, very much an encouragement uh, to to pray. And it was also uh, very comforting to see that even even this guy who was clearly such a, a stalwart for prayer, he he brought to light some of the things the the struggles that I've had regarding having a weak prayer life. On page twenty seven, he says sometimes we're conscious of a satanic impulse directed immediately against the life of prayer in our souls. Sometimes we're led into erudites and wilderness experiences, and the face of God grows dark above us. And so that that kind of made me think about some times in, in my life where, you know, I've, I've been spending time in God's Word, but because I was not being constant in prayer, my time spending God's Word was more more of an academic and intellectual type endeavor, which defeats the purpose. That's that's not what we're called to do. And how it's very easy to see, you know, whether it be, you know, the satanic impulse or your own sin nature, to see how you can be led away from prayer, distracted by it. Even, you know, even times when you've you finished up your Bible reading and something comes up and you, you don't get to finish and pray. Things like that that can lead to dryness, you know, dryness in your in your relationship with God. Uh, so hearing hearing that he was able to relate to that and even speak on it was very encouraging to me. And that's what I would say as well. This is mainly a book of encouragement. Uh, it's not a book of judgmentality. It's to get you to where you want to go. One of the things that he mentioned was that for most of us, it may be hard to find a quiet hour. Actually, when I read that, I thought to myself, is it really that hard to find a quiet hour for myself? Or am I just not taking time to make time for something that should be a daily routine in my life. And what's also good about this book is it gives you practical advice as to what it is that can help you to keep prayer on your mind. One of the things that he mentioned in the first chapter is that there's three ways to stay in the mind of God. One is to remember your Redeemer, Christ, who voluntarily died for you, to remember the Father's Spirit, by whose assisting grace we are taught and made able and willing to bring ourselves before God in repentance for our sins or in petition or supplication for others, and then remember the Word of God, which can help you to fix your mind on the truth God wants you to know and reflect on. Amen. And I really liked, and this is in the first chapter again still, he talks about the life of prayer is not this life of inaction, not doing anything, not accomplishing anything. He has a quote here. He says, those who pray well, work well. Those who pray most achieve the grandest results. And when I read that and then reading through the book, if you think about all of our heroes in the faith, theologians from the past, you can't read or study about them and miss that they were holy, each one of them devoted to prayer. I mean, they all had extraordinary prayer life, praying often, praying long hours, being very faithful in prayer. And that prayer is is why we still read about them today, because they were so devoted to God in prayer is the reason why their works have had such an impact and have existed throughout time until now. In the second chapter, that was the, the thing that stood out the most as well, like finding a quiet hour and having to put aside other things that are pleasant and some things that are profitable in order to pray, because prayer is the most important thing. I was listening to a sermon on prayer the other day, and the 
pastor said, one of the most dangerous things to, to a Christian is that the urgent things in our lives will take priority over important things. There's lots of urgent things we can do, but are they important? Nothing's more important than prayer. So, uh, yeah, I think finding time, making time, and devoting time to prayer is, is so important. Yeah, so talking in chapter 2, he starts out with laying out, it's, it's titled The Equipment, and he starts talking about um, the three things, which I, I would say, he, you know, they sum up the equipment, a quiet place, a quiet hour, and a quiet heart. And it, it, it was one of those things where, obviously, you can you can say it is difficult, like Ryan was saying, it is difficult to find a quiet place, but then in other, other ways, it's not. A lot of times, it's difficult to find a quiet place when we want to find a quiet place, but at the times where other things have gotten they've become more important to us then then at that point we we've set aside our quiet place for those things like what Daniel was just talking about and if you need a quiet place just get up early i mean right. you know or go to bed later it's okay um no, that too yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes i think when we actually are feeling the pressures of daily life that may be the time when god puts things to where we need to come back to him and it's obvious to us that there's something going on here there's something that i need help with but i can't control and given that, if there's no one else I can turn to, this is at least a reminder that I should have been praying all along for someone to be healed, for someone to be brought back to a knowledge of Christ, any number of things that we you know, need to have been making a routine in our lives beforehand, and maybe God is using this as an opportunity to draw us back to him. And I liked when, when talking about the importance of prayer and making time for prayer, he talks about Jesus here. He said Jesus found time to pray. Jesus put aside doing supernatural works uh, to heal people. He put aside preaching the gospel to save people's lives. And he he notes here that Jesus had no sin to confess, no shortcoming to deplore, no unbelief to subdue, and no languor of love to overcome. And yet he still devoted such importance and, you know, made so much time to to seek God and to pray and put aside other good things that he was doing to pray. And you can't get a better example or a more compelling example than that, I think. Absolutely. So he spent some time going through chapter 2 on page 41 He's, he's talked about the quiet hour and, and the, the quiet place. And obviously that brings the brings up the image of, of a significant amount of time spent praying. And I think he also kind of, he, he lightens the load a little bit on page 41, where he, he says, one, one sometimes hears it said, I confess that I do not spend much time in the secret chamber, but I try to cultivate the habit of continual prayer. And that's, that's to say that it's almost a set one aside of another. It's almost, I don't have to set aside or I don't set aside this time because I'm in a state of continual prayer. And I, I, I liked how he brought it together where he said it is implied that this is more and better than that, but these two things ought not to be set in opposition. And that's to say that, uh, you know, one thing that, that I've learned is the concept of where you're, you're praying based off of things that are happening to you, uh, based off of, you know, what's happening to you on a, on a day-to-day, you know, the, the short aspects of continual prayer. That's what I think of when I think of continual prayer, those times when you find yourself praying over instances that are happening to you. And in a way, that was encouraging because I've, I've never thought of those, I think of them as prayer, but I don't think of it as the same type of discipline of prayer. And to, to think that one can lead to the other was, was also very encouraging to me to, to hear that, you know, being said by him in his time. And I think he also mentioned somewhere that one can't happen without the other, right. insofar as you're not going to go about living a life of prayer to God and just continually being in a state of prayer and uh, worshiping God. That comes out of secret time with God and alone, quiet prayer with God. You can't just say, well, oh yeah, I'm just, I don't really pray, but I just am constantly with God throughout the day. No, being able to do that comes out of a secret life of prayer and then going to God 
continuously on a one-on-one quiet personal basis. I don't know where he said that, but that's actually one of the things I wanted to bring up during the podcast. And that's if you're having time to listen to us, maybe it's a good idea to just pause for five minutes and be quiet with God, reflect on his word, think about what it is that's going on in your life that your father can help you with because we're sure not the ones that are going to be able to help you beyond what he's already able to in his word. But then come back and finish the episode. Yeah, that's what I meant. Be sure to come back. (laughs) The next chapter is about the direction of the mind, what kind of state your mind is in and the direction that your mind should be in when when praying to God. What would y'all think? I love the idea of realizing the presence of God. When I when I read it over this, it, you know, it really made me think about how you know prayer is. You've, we've heard the phrase before, going before the throne. That's that's really that puts it in perspective. You're when when you're praying, when you're communing with God, you're standing before the throne of the Almighty. You know, and there there's there's no greater honor for the Christian for anyone than to stand before that throne, especially as a Christian, knowing that you're standing before that throne in front of a king and a creator that that loves you and that has taken care of you, that sent his son to die for you, you're standing in that presence. And to, to know that you can approach that throne and not approach it, you approach it in a humble way, but but you approach that throne with boldness. You you have that, that place. That is your, he talks later about uh, your birthright. That's your birthright. You're, you're given that. You're not given it because you earned it. You're not given it because of anything other than the fact that, that Christ secured it for you. But thinking in prayer, not just in terms of of talking to God, but thinking of it as, as boldly going before the throne, I think really helps put the presence of God in perspective when you're praying. So I had a question about, kind of about that, leading into that at least. He talks about on page 54, the Scots worthies used to talk much of gaining access. And then he quotes, he says, you must go and leave me for some time. I thought yesterday, yesterday night when I lay down, I had a good measure of the Lord's presence. And now I have wrestled this hour or two and have not yet got access. And then he says, it it may be that in his solitude there was a disproportionate subjectivity, yet the eagerness of his desire was surely commendable. To what profit is it if we dwell in Jerusalem, if we do not see the king's face? And I think if you read a lot of men that we appreciate their theology, they a lot of them will have extraordinary experiences in prayer being, I mean, I think of Sproul and his conversion where he goes into the chapel and he just talks about this overwhelming sense of God and, and power and conviction coming over him and stuff but you know and he says in some of that there might be subjectivity but i think that like he said you know what profit is it if we dwell in jerusalem if you don't see the king's face like when you go to god in prayer you should i think there should be some expectation of feeling his presence and him being with you and i know i've definitely felt that to some degree not to any kind of degree that i've read about in some on some men but what do y'all think about that well that's that's the trouble that 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 i've always felt the more i read about you know, generations before us and, and hearing them talk about those things, you know, reading some of the accounts of, of the Great Awakening and, and things like that, you know, all of those experiences and all of those things. And, and I, I, for whatever reason, more than likely, like you said, for based off our own, our own dryness, we don't have those experiences. And I'm not to say that we should be seeking for those experiences alone, um, but I think it is, it is very telling. But, uh, you know, I think he takes a very measured approach there when he talks about, yes, some of it probably is subjective. But, but of course, I, I wouldn't have a problem with having some of those experiences. I, I'm honestly jealous sometimes when I hear a lot of conversion stories where there's this deep, crushing experience that they can all, they're always going to remember how that felt at their conversion, whereas other people like me, I don't have a story like that. I don't have something, some actual experience to point back to. 
Um, I would say that one of the examples he mentioned, and it's an anecdote I don't exactly recall offhand, but it was somebody who was praying for something for 29 years before it was fulfilled. And I may be jumping the gun when I quote this, but one of the things that he said was uh, in a later chapter, with many of us, emotion may be feeble and rapture of spirit may be rare. Love to Christ may express itself more naturally in right conduct than tumult of praise. But it is probable that to each sincere believer... There are granted seasons of communion when, as one turns to the unseen glory, the veil of sense becomes translucent, and one seems to behold within the holiest the very face and form of him who died for sins, who rose for our justification, who now awaits us at the right hand of God. So even thinking upon that fact should bring you kind of to a very stark understanding of what it is that had to be sacrificed for us to even be brought to a state in which we can pray to God, for us to consider him as father, someone that we can come to with all of our troubles, small or big, and for him to at least listen, and then he has a plan for us. Maybe that doesn't accord with what we may have thought could benefit us most, but if nothing else, who doesn't covet the idea of being able to have a father who's going to be able to talk with them or listen to them and uh, guide them? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I would never say that I uh, don't think these men's experiences are real. I think that God deals with different men in different ways. And I mean, all Absolutely. these men, you know, a lot of them that have had these kind of experiences go on to do above and beyond or very difficult things for the Lord. And I think that sometimes some particular service might need to be galvanized with some kind of experience that alters a man. I think that I hear a lot of, you hear a lot of preachers and missionaries and authors talk about these kind of things. And these are the men who've done, uh, devoted their lives to God in, in an extraordinary way. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense that something extraordinary happens in their life. Still, there's something very special about the idea that we're ourselves, our bodies are temples of the spirit. That goes back to what I had kind of mentioned as what struck me earlier on in the book as we're new priests in the kingdom of Christ and that we now have direct access to God and the Holy of Holies through Christ with whom we have been raised. That's not something that, you know, going back to Bo's point about the presence of God being in our lives, that's not something that Old Testament believers could have had daily in their lives. The the high priest confessed the whole sins of the people on their behalf. We can do that. We can confess our own sins um, daily, and that's something that McIntyre goes into later in the book, but it's also something that I would like to mention now as, you know, you already have something that, although you may not see any special extraordinary events in your life that may cause you to think about how am I, you know, special in the eyes of God, you are. I think that rolls perfectly into the next chapter. I mean, it's perfect because the next chapter talks about worship and he talks about our tribute of praise and the three things that we can give to God in prayer, and he says, in the acknowledgement of daily mercies, in thanksgiving for the great redemption, or in contemplation of the divine perfection. And I was really thinking about those. Me and my wife were talking about these three things specifically. What y'all? What do y'all think about about these three things? I mean, Ryan already kind of talked about it a little bit. I mean, you're talking about thanksgiving. You know, considering our redemption, considering the divine, considering our redemption in light of the divine perfection. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Absolutely. There's a quote, actually, that jumped out to me when um, that came to mind, uh, and it was that uh, McIntyre says, It is right also that we should search into the riches and glory of the inheritance of which we have been made partakers. The blood of Christ, the grace of the Spirit, the light of the divine countenance are the three jewels worth more than heaven. 
The name of Christ hath in it 10,000 treasures of joy. And I think what he's talking about there is that whenever we pray, we have to think about what has been given up for us in order for us to be in that position. I kind of alluded to that before. But for anybody who's a Christian, you know why you're a Christian. It's because Christ had to come down and sacrifice himself for your sins. The God-man had to condescend to take a position which he did not have to do. And unless that's on your mind when you're praying, it's not going to be as impactful because you're not going to see what the cost was for you to be able to now bring your other troubles to the Father. So I'm going on a different note. I wanted to point this out. This this book, had, we, we mentioned a few times before, that this book had so many, there's so many quotes, it's hard to narrow them down to any that you know you want to say, but there, there's a few little anecdotes that I think need to come out because uh, they just make really good points. And one of my favorite ones is on uh, page 69. Said says, Alexander Simpson, a famous Scottish minister of 200 years ago, once when wa- out walking, fell and broke his leg. He was found sitting with his broken leg in his arm and always crying out, blessed be the Lord, blessed be his name. And I had to, I had to pause uh, when, when I read that because I've hurt myself many a times. I've never broken anything, but I've hurt myself many a times. And I've I've said a lot of things, a whole lot of things, most of which I'm not proud of, but uh, I've never once had the inclination to stop and say, blessed be the Lord, blessed be his name when something really, really hurt. And that, Do you usually say fiddlesticks? I don't think I've ever said fiddlesticks. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> some, maybe some variations on that, but never fiddlesticks. But uh, it goes in line with the idea of, of thanking God for, for everything. And you know, unfortunately, sometimes that means falling and breaking your leg. And, it's just something to attain to, something something to reach for. Someday, God forbid, I break a bone. Um, hopefully, I'll be saying, blessed be the Lord, blessed be his name. Yeah, and I guess I'll trail to that with another anecdote that he talks about, and it was a uh, minister who said, I've experienced today the most exquisite pleasure that I've ever had in my life, said a young invalid. I was able to breathe freely for about five minutes. And how much do we take for granted that we're having blessing, blessings constantly being provided to us in our life Absolutely. that are beyond measure, more pleasurable than that, and we just act as if they're nothing. We don't acknowledge them, we don't think about them, we don't reflect upon them, and measured against what Christians around the world are having to be persecuted for and deal with that is not comparable to what we have been blessed with. It needs to be a reality check to us to acknowledge that those mercies of God are given to us with an end in mind, and that's for us to forward the kingdom of Christ. Absolutely. I'm going to go back to the three things, acknowledgement of daily mercies, thanksgiving for the great redemption, and contemplation of the divine perfection. I was just really thinking this week about contemplating the divine perfection. I was trying to do that in prayer, just sit there and contemplate God's divine perfection. And I think just thinking about this this God who created everything, who's all-knowing, all-powerful, I mean, we can't even comprehend. He could bring all the, you know, all our technology, all our power and progress, you know, to an end with a blink. Uh, He's just so powerful. And our redemption in light of that just becomes that much more amazing that this God is the one who said, come to me and ask and it'll be given to you. Believe in my son and you will have eternal life with me and no longer view you as an enemy. You'll be my son. I heard a preacher say one time, he said, it would have been endless mercy if he would have just sent us to hell for a little while. 
It would have been inconceivable if he had just made us cease to exist, right? But he, he saved us. He made us his sons. This God of the universe made us sons. So I was just trying to think about that. Our salvation in light of his divine perfection is just amazing. And then that trickles down to daily mercies that it would have been a mercy if he treated us horrible on this earth and we get to go to heaven. I mean, right. that's that's not a sacrifice at all. We get to go spend eternity in heaven. But no, he takes care of us on this earth. Me and my wife were talking about even the bad things are daily mercies to us because in light of the second thing, you know, our great redemption, we know that everything is working towards that great redemption for us. And so in that light, yeah, a Christian can be thankful for all the mercies we see every day, whether they are, you know, pleasurable in this life or sometimes not pleasurable, but read in the light of eternity. It's, you know, we understand that this divinely perfect God is working everything for our great redemption. And I just, that's been really helpful to me, those three categories, and just thinking about those when praying. Uh, it's been really helpful. Romans eight twenty eight. all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And if we're the ones that have been blessed with that many mercies, how much more should we be imitators of Christ and express those mercies to other people in our daily lives? Absolutely. All right, so chapter five. Chapter five is about confession. And the very first sentence is, mm. confession yep. of sin is the first act of an awakened sinner and the first mark of a gracious spirit. Pretty much sums it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's that's one of the things that, that I've got that underlined as well, uh, the very first thing in this chapter. Would, would you guys agree that you cannot claim any salvation experience without a confession of sin, right? Of course. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, that that's the—I love that that's, that's the first place that he goes in this chapter because it's, it's really the first— place that anyone has to go in any, you know, evangelical process, any, any salvific process is, is there must be a, a recognition of sin, a, a destruction, a guilt of sin and a confession of sin. And I, I love that that was the very first, very first sentence that he had in this chapter. And something that I really like that he talks about here is in the second page of the chapter, he says, confession of sin should be explicit. And then later on, down in that same page, he says, a wise old writer says, a child of God will confess sin in particular. An unsound Christian will confess sin by wholesale. He will acknowledge he is a sinner in general, whereas David doth, as it were, point with his finger to the sore, I have done this evil. And I catch myself doing that. I think that it's helpful to identify specific times when you sinned and confess these specific sins because it's... I mean, it's just much easier to, to wholesale, you know, I'm, I sinned against you. Everybody I've been a bad Christian. That. You don't really have to examine what it's, you did. One, one, of the, one of the things I caught myself saying in my prayers for this exact reason, you know, was uh, what, what the man who beat his chest in, in the New Testament said, you know, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And, you know, when I first started praying that, it felt, it felt really good because that's a, that's a specific scripture passage that I'm praying with the intent of saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And that was what I prayed. And then I realized that was that was a cop out. That was me saying, "God be merciful to in a general way to me, a general sinner." I have a lot of general sin without because it was you know it was too embarrassing, almost too too shameful to actually say, "God, this is how I've sinned today, this moment, this hour." You know, this is how this is what I've done wrong. Forgive me for this individual act. So I, I thought that was a very very wise that he pointed that out because I think that's I think there's probably a lot of people that that get into that. It's God, I'm a wretched sinner. Forgive me. Okay, moving on. That's not enough to ensure that, that prayer is the sancti- has the sanctifying spirit that it's supposed to have. These are the exact things that also jumped out at me, and I like that he also provided the supporting scriptures by which we can know that that's actually what God is expecting from us in prayer. Leviticus 1.4 says, I have sinned, I have done perversely, I have rebelled, I have committed blank, and then the specific sin 
or sins were named and the worshiper continued, but I return in penitence. Let this be for my atonement. In Joshua, there's a passage 7, 19, and 20. Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord Israel, and thus and thus I have done. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us for all unrighteousness. We're, we're, we're confessing specific sins right. here. Psalm 51, 4. I have done this evil. He doth not say I have done evil, but this evil. He points to his blood guiltiness. You have to acknowledge what the specific things are that you're doing before you can even begin to try to expect repentance or correction of any sort to occur in your life. Right. And then he also says here, I noticed this, I've noticed this reading, again, a lot of older Christian authors. He says, as our hearts grow more tender into the presence of God, the remembrance of former sins, which have already been acknowledged and forgiven, will from time to time imprint a fresh stain upon our conscience. And I always think of John Bunyan. If you read his autobiography or his biography, he has very, very sensitive to sin and past sins that he did. And he just had a very sensitive heart. I mean, he was like overwhelmed with grief when he did had the slightest sin. And I think as you grow more tender, you do remember your past sins. I mean, David prayed, remember not my sins of my youth, right? But then later on, I like he said, he quotes Rutherford and he says, but Rutherford reminds us there is no law music in heaven. There all the song is worthy is the lamb and the blood of ransom has atoned for all sin. But I do think that is a sign of growing closer to God when you're more sensitive to your own right. sins and you're remorseful. I mean, just because our sins, uh, the sins of our past are forgiven, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be remorseful over them. Right. Actually, you know? I had a question about that because I specifically actually looked at that quote and I thought to myself, so if we're confessing sins now, it is true that the sins of our past are forgiven. Is it not true as well that the sins of our present and future have also been imputed to Christ? And if so, what would be the point of confession, I guess? And that's more of a challenging question rather than I'm not, I'm not trying to provoke anything. Um, but it is something that I was, I was thinking about and would like to hear your thoughts about before I maybe provide my own. I would probably say that it's a similar to our salvation, right? Which is accomplished in Christ. He's already died for sins. He's already paid the penalty for sins yet. It happens in time because we exist within time. So I would say it's the same thing. Yeah, I was also thinking of the already not yet dimension of salvation and the idea that, yes, all sins have been forgiven in the present when we have been justified in Christ. That's the objective realm in which things occur, but there's also the progressive realm of sanctification in which we're also mortifying the sins of our flesh and trying to become more Christ-like subjectively. And in that dimension, we also need to be forgiven and progress more towards being perfect ourselves. And I, I would say that I guess our sins are forgiven when you're a believer, whether or not you confess them or not, because you're saved. I mean, that, right. that we don't have a works-based salvation, right. whereas if you don't repent all your sins, right. repent of all your sins and confess all your sins, right. you're not a believer. Absolutely. They are forgiven in Christ either way. But yeah, like you said, sanctification, the progressive nature of sanctification and how God has ordained for his children to become more like him and right. to grow in grace is through confessing and repenting of sins continuously throughout their whole life. Amen. And that's why I think in Matthew, Christ says something to the effect of, if you're not going to forgive other people, as I have said, I will forgive those who come to me asking for forgiveness. Are you truly a follower of me? We should be imitators of Christ. If we're not, then to what extent can we really be said to be united with him? I really liked in this chapter... He talks about the deadness, if you feel a deadness of heart, that that may be the operation of the Holy Spirit 
drawing you back to God, convicting you of sin. And, and I think one of the other books we talked about this that are actually, no, that's a future book, Rutherford's book, where he's writing a letter to someone and he says, your hard, cold heart is not a sign of you being not saved, but you're struggling with this. You know, that's a sign of the Holy Spirit working in you right. to change you and to convict you and bring you into repentance. Yeah, I, I agree with that. First off, I'd like to say that I, I knew when I saw a Rutherford quote, I literally made a mental note that you were going to talk about the Rutherford quote, and you didn't disappoint. <laughs> so I appreciate that. But that, that last point you made, it's a, that's the same thing that I've, I've told people that I know that have struggled with assurance of salvation in times that, you know, that I've struggled with that as well. The lack of assurance, I think, is oftentimes a, a tool that Satan uses to limit the growth of a Christian rather than to awaken the unbeliever to what he doesn't have. I mean, what, that makes no sense. If, if you have someone who's on their way to hell, why would you then prompt them to realize, ah, maybe I'm not a Christian? No, that's what you do to limit the believer. Now, that's not to say in, in every sense that's the case. I agree with that, with that assumption, and that's, that's something that, that points to a limiting factor in a Christian rather than, than the, something that you would see in the unregenerate. I like the last quote in or the last paragraph in this chapter, and he's just talking about confession of sin and considering our guiltiness, and our sinfulness before God, he says, All the poisonous fruit of our iniquity have been killed. All the bitter consequences of our evil deeds have been blotted out. And the only relic of sin which are found in heaven are the scarred feet and hands and side of the Redeemer. So when the saved from earth recall their former transgressions, they look to Christ. And the remembrance of sin dies in the love of him who wore the thorn crown and endured the cross. The fouler was the heir, the sadder was the fall. The ampler are the praises of him who pardoned all. I just thought that was a good into chapter about confession that was that would be a very good end except i cannot let this chapter pass by without quoting jonathan edwards because that would be wrong that would be immoral <laughs> for us well, you've already let four chapters pass by he wasn't in every chapter this oh, okay. is the first edwards quote i think it says my wickedness as i am in myself has long appeared to me perfectly ineffable and swallowing up all thought and imagination like an infinite deluge or mountains over my head I know not how to express better what my sins appear to me to be than by heaping infinite upon infinite and multiplying infinite by infinite. Very often for these many years, these expressions are in my mind and in my mouth. Infinite upon infinite, infinite upon infinite. I really just want to quote Jonathan Edwards. We can move on now. Oh, that's a good quote. But the next chapter is on request or requests to God in prayer. And y'all go ahead because yes, my so. favorite quote is like halfway through the chapter, so... So he gives a lot of lists with numbers, which for my simplistic mind is very helpful. He's talking about all these different things. The prayer of faith, like some plant rooted in a fruitful soil, draws its virtue from a disposition which has been brought into conformity with the mind of Christ. Then he goes on to list what I think he's talking about in that quote. He's saying, it's number one, it's subject to the divine will. It's restrained within the interest of Christ. It's instructed in the truth. It's energized by the Spirit. It is interwoven with love and mercy. It is accompanied with obedience. It is so earnest that it will not accept denial, and it goes out to look for and hate and to hasten its answer. And what I like to, uh, the the next thing that I like, I'll turn it over to you guys. He talks about how there is nothing mysterious in the act of faith. It is simply an assurance which reply, relies upon a sufficient warning. I really like that. Well, one of the first things that jumped out to me was, I mean, the chapter is about the requests that we're being able to make to our Father. You know, when you think about that. Logically speaking, which is where my mind turns normally, one of the quotes that the author mentions is, but it may be objected, if our Father knoweth what things we have of need before we ask him, and if it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom, is it necessary that we should present our Hmm. petitions deliberately before him? 
The simplest answer to that question is that we are instructed to do so, which is a fair answer. But I love that he actually goes on and also supplements that with, it is possible, however, to suggest certain reasons why we should be with particularity and importunity imploring those blessings which are already ours in Christ. And I think one example he gives is that from Deuteronomy 8.17, he wants to caution those against thinking that my power and the might of mine hand have gotten me this wealth or whatever it is that has been beneficial to us. That's not true. It's a bestowment of the covenant by which we have received all things. I think Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 seven mentions what have you that you have not received there's there's nothing that you have that you have not received from right. the father so it's it's not a question of the father knowing or bestowing it's the question of do you know that what you have is something that you have not received and are you willing to admit that in prayer or not yeah and he he explicitly says that he says by prayer our continued and humbled dependence upon the grace of god is secured and then another reason he gives the third one, which is actually my favorite, it really, it just struck me, and I just thought about it a lot. He says, Much, very much, has often to be accomplished in us before we are fitted to employ worthily the gifts we covet. And I just really thought about that because when thinking about asking God for things in prayer, and, and maybe you don't receive them, or you haven't gotten them, or it's taking forever, this just really struck me that you might not be ready for what you're asking right. for. God still has to work in you before you're ready to receive what you're asking for, even if what you're asking for is a good and biblical thing, you might not be at the place where you are spiritually ready or whatever it might be. But I think specifically he's talking about spiritually ready here for this gifts or to serve God in this way or to have this certain thing or to do this certain thing that you might be wanting to do. And I was just really neat to think about it. And it reminded me of a quote I heard from a sermon one time. The pastor said, I always have young, I think it was A.W. Tozer. He said, I always have young men coming up to me saying they want to be used by God. And he said, well, become usable and God will wear you out. Yeah. And I think that the act of just coming and praying is one of the main means by which God makes you usable. And yes. continued prayer is one of the main means by which God makes you usable for the gifts you're asking that he's not giving you now because you're not not giving you yet because you're not ready. Continued prayer is, is one of the main means by which you become ready and by, by which we're sanctified and grow more God-like and grow more Christ-like. And so then God uh, will grant prayers that are good prayers. You know, So continue in prayer and, and trust in God. I really like that. Yeah, he expands upon that, what you were talking about in the next point. It says, There's a great work to be done in the hearts of men. There's a fierce battle to be waged with spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Demons are to be cast out. The potencies of hell are to be restrained. The works of the devil to be destroyed. And in these things, it is by prayer above all other means that we shall be able to cooperate with the captain of the Lord's host. Put that quote with what you just said, and there's really nothing else to be said on the subject. So. Well, I do, because well, we, live in a, <laughs> we live in a culture of instant gratification, and the idea that we should just be instant warriors of God where yeah. whatever we want is going to be readily granted to us, like all the power or whatever. You know, What Daniel said, and I'm going to expand on his quote itself from earlier, much, very much has often to be accomplished in us before we are fitted to employ worthily the gifts we covet, and God affects this preparation of heart largely by delaying to grant right. our request at once and so holding us in the truth of his presence until we are brought into a spiritual understanding of Christ for us in this respect. Christianity is not a religion of instant gratification. It's right. a religion of maturity. You need to be mature in Christ before you can be effectual for him. And that's just a hard fact of reality that not only you know other people, I recognize in myself that I need to face so 
that's all the more convicting when I read this book and realize that if I'm not measuring up to what Christ is calling me to do, that's my own fault. And I need to follow that conviction, not with a hard heartedness, but looking to see what is the will of Christ in my life. Yeah, obviously talk- it's obviously it's prayer. Yeah. Talking about instant gratification though, before we, before we move on, uh, one of the, the wisest things that I've ever heard or that I've heard coming from someone who was living, uh, came from my pastor's wife who was speaking to, to me and my wife at one point talking about how you, you have to be content with the, the small amount of growth, the small amount of learning that you have incrementally over time, as opposed to my personality, I want, I want, give me the, the systematic thing to go point by point by point through everything. And as opposed to this little bit of nugget of wisdom here and then here and then here that builds gradually like a mustard seed over time. Nobody's expecting you to know everything at once. Right. I know that's a concern of a lot of people. Like I want to know everything at once. I don't want to be hoodwinked into anything, but that's not how life works. You have to gradually build up your knowledge base little by little. And you have to have a solid foundation on which to do that. God's word. And and the same applies over to sanctification. I find myself thinking, I wish I was a really godly man so I could lead my family and teach my children. And so my children would grow up to be godly. And I'm reminded of Calvin's quote when he says, sometimes it seems like we're just crawling towards Christ. Actually, in the next chapter, he quotes Richard Sibbs. He says, while we abide in Christ, we ought not to allow ourselves to be discouraged by the apparent slowness of our advancement in grace. In nature, growth proceeds with varying speed. So he talks about uh, during the winter, the roots of a tree grow very little amount. So at different seasons, they grow at different paces, and that's how it is in nature. That's how it is in our sanctification. And so don't be discouraged, but continue to press forward and continue to seek out God in prayer. Keeping in mind that, that you're, you're not on your own timetable. You're, you're, not, you're not acting and, and working on your, the timetable that you've set for yourself. You're working on God's timetable. And you're going to accomplish, as a, as a Christian, you're going to accomplish what he wants you to accomplish in the time that he's going to give you on this earth. And to, to try to rush that in a certain way is, is probably to, to miss out on something that God has for you to see. Yeah, and this chapter, chapter 7, is the hidden riches of the secret place. This probably had my favorite quotes in it, the whole book. Um, starting right off at the, in the front page there, it says, Lauren, uh, it's a quote from Lauren Scopoli. Prayer is the means by which we obtain all the graces which rain down upon us from the divine fountain of goodness and love. I mean, there's a lot of quotes about prayer and and obtaining grace for prayer in here. He says, this is the reward of the secret place. Uh, Through prayer, our graces are quickened and holiness is wrought in us. And he quotes Flavel. He says, you must strive to excel in this. No grace within or serves without can thrive without it. And then he says, the excellent Barrage affirms that all decay begins in the closet. No heart thrives without much secret converse with God, and nothing will make amends for the want of it. And then he says, I find myself better or worse as I decay and increase in prayer. And that quote really stuck out to me. I find myself better and worse as I decay and increase in prayer because I really uh, identified with that. I, it's scary how quickly I can fall back into a worldly mindset and a worldly selfish way of thinking about things when I'm not committed to pray to praying to God and spending time with him. You know, it's something a Christian has to have. Absolutely. Also, the the rest of this episode is probably just going to be mostly quotes because there's so many quotes in this book. <laughs> I mean, I'm actually going to follow with a quote that comes immediately after what you just cited, and that's, If prayer is hindered, even though it be hindered by devotion to other duties of religion, the health of the soul is impaired. And 
I don't know that this was the intention of the author when he wrote it, but right now I'm going through marriage counseling, and one of the things that my pastor mentioned in marriage counseling was First Peter 3, 7, and that reads, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And one of the points that he made was, if you're not living in a way in which you're trying to understand what your wife is dealing with, your prayers are going to be hindered. And how like impactful is that? Or how cognizant of that do you need to be going into a marriage? Because if, I mean, if you're not trying to be on the same page with them, to understand them, to grow with them, to lead them, it's going to affect your own prayer life. And if that's one of the mean, the primary means of sanctification, you're halting your own sanctification by not working with your wife. So that's an immediately experiential, practical way in which you can see how this book could impact you. That was one of the ways in which I saw it would impact me. Well, it's definitely good advice, yeah. especially for us married guys, yeah. to remember that. <laughs> My ears are burning over yeah, here. Yeah, so. uh, let's move on. <clears throat> now, I, I, so the quote right after that, I, I like gardening and plants and stuff, so th- this really stuck with me. He said, Communion with God is the condition of spiritual growth. It is the soil in which all graces of the divine life root themselves. And, and so it's not optional. The point in all these quotes and stuff he's trying to drive home is that prayer is not optional. You're... Your growth and grace, your spiritual life, your sanctification depends on prayer. It's not optional. He notes at the very start of the book that God uh, assumes that Christians are to to pray. I mean, it's all throughout the Bible. It's assumed that Christians spend time in prayer. It's commanded that Christians spend time in prayer, and uh, it's not a joke. You know, I mean, it it is necessary. Think about how they—think of life as as they had it, you know. Prayer was not— it, it probably really was a lifeblood because you know we live in a time where we don't we don't require as much prayer in in our daily lives. You know these people were they were on the chopping block day after day for their faith. You know their their life had to have been bathed in prayer just to get by minute by minute by minute. You know that, that's that's crazy to think about how how blessed we are and how how. God and his providence has given us a place where we can be Christians who who don't rely on prayer. While that's a curse, it, it's also, in a sense, it's it's crazy to think that he's by his providence, he's placed us in a place where we don't require or rely on prayer like, like our predecessors have, as a means of survival. I yep. agree, and I don't think Satan is chomping at the bit to bring persecution to America, because right. I think we have our own sort right. of spiritual persecution that uh, drives us further away from God than than where actual persecution, you know, exists. Yep. I think that's where we have to go back to our understanding of who we are in relation to God. On page 106, McIntyre makes the point that prayer is the avowal of our creature dependence. For the believer also is the acknowledgement that he is not his own, but is by reason of the great atonement, the purchased possession of the Son of God. And this ties back into what he said earlier with us remembering the daily mercies, the perfection of God, the redemption by which we have been bought and are able to make these prayers. I think that kind of ties in everything that he's trying to say here. And that's, as a creature, we depend on God. It just is common sense that we should come to him, our Father even, to seek benediction, seek seek things that we need in our lives to grow better and right. more like Christ. 
It's something else he mentions in this chapter kind of had me thinking, and I want to get y'all's opinion on it. He talks about George Mueller, page 108, and George Mueller talks about when I was, he says, when I was sincerely and, and patiently sought to know the will of God by the teaching of the Holy Ghost through the instrumentality of the Word of God, I have always been directed rightly. But if honesty of heart and uprightness before God were lacking, or if I did not patiently wait before God for instruction, or if I preferred the counsel of my fellow men to the declarations of the Word of God, I made great mistakes. To me, that was like prayer was a way of life for them. And when he was walking with God and when he was in prayer with God, he found that he was directed rightly. He made correct decisions. He followed God. And when he didn't, he made mistakes. So prayer is not this thing that you just go to God and ask him, like, do I need to do this one specific thing and then expect some type of supernatural feeling to tell you if you should do it or not. Absolutely. It's more of a walking with Christ, following Christ, continual communion with Christ. And because of that, your path is directed straight right. because you are in communion with him. You are you know his word, and so you can make decisions when they come to you um, with full confidence and authority. You know because you you're you're in that relationship with God instead of trying to walk in your own strength. Because then when decisions come to you, you're going to make them on your your you know own strength. So I, I think we shouldn't think of prayer as some kind of thing I need to come to to make this specific decision, right. and I'm going to get some kind of mystical feeling. Right. Um, it's more about communion with God and knowing his word and being constantly in his presence, and so then your path is ordered correctly. Yeah, we, we've, we've all seen that, you know, in our lives at, in different different points. Amongst godly, you know, people who, who simply wanted to know God's will but just didn't have the best understanding of how to go about it, and which Christian Orthodox college do I choose? And you know, I've seen people really agonize over decisions like that. You know, what what if I'm not in God's will by choosing this Orthodox Christian school versus this Orthodox Christian school? And I think that really is a misunderstanding of how it's supposed to work, of how what you're supposed to have and, and how your decisions are supposed to flow from that. Yeah, I agree. You need to have an idea of why it is what you're praying for. It can't just be from your own feelings. Uh, it should be directed by the Word of God. And I really actually think that this ties in well with the last chapter more than it does this one, but I don't want to head anybody off where that happens. Last chapter, it's called The Open Recompense. This actually probably had my favorite quote in the whole book, and I think that I appreciated that the author was actually more and more clear as he wrote what it is that we should expect from prayer, because we should have expectations. It's not proper if we don't. And this is what he means by that. If we do not expect to receive answers to our requests, our whole conception of prayer is at fault. Look for a harvest. It is atheism to pray and not wait in hope. A sincere Christian will wait, pray, strengthen his heart with promises, and never leave praying and looking up till God gives him a gracious answer. If the answer is delayed, we ought to ask ourselves if that which we desire is truly in accord with the will of God, and if we are satisfied that it is, we should continue instant in prayer. So I I really think that that actually gives you a kind of guideline that you use when you are praying. Because I think some of the things that, well, I know people struggle with in general, including myself, is I've prayed for this thing for a while now. How do I know that God is really going to answer that in the way that I want? Or how do I know that I'm even in alignment with what God's will is? And at some point, I think that you have to have a sense of Either he answers immediately and you know that it was in his will or it's not. And then you have to question, okay, maybe it's not in his will at this time, or maybe I need to reexamine my motives for praying, or is this in kind of uh, alignment with what God's word is in the first place? And that should lead you to 
not just question without an answer, but also have an idea of what the answer should be. I think meditating on God's word is a very important facet here that you mentioned in your last quote. You got to meditate on God's word and not just try to pray on your own, asking for things that who knows may may or may not be in alignment with what God's will is, but you'll never have a reason to think it is unless you read God's word. Yeah, and and my point wasn't that you shouldn't pray for specific things and going right pat and you quoted this at the start actually George Mueller that he prayed for something for 29 years, right? But the whole time he said, nevertheless, I look for it. I expect it confidently. And he does talk about later in the book, if you pray for something and it's not answered, then yes, you need to assess is what you're asking for in God's will. Are you asking for it for the correct motive? Are you ready for it? All those things Ryan said, that's completely correct. But it may be, it might be that God just doesn't want to grant it right now. And so God expects you, like George Mueller, to continue to pray. I mean, we think of, uh, who is the missionary to Africa? Oh, William Carey. And he labored his whole life there, and I don't think he saw any converts. He prayed his whole life for salvation to come to those people, and it it never did. You know, the results of his prayers were answered after he died. They were answered in a magnificent way. I mean, there's, you know, Christianity is spread all throughout Africa now. And so, you know, just because you don't see the answer to your prayer doesn't mean that God is not going to answer your prayer, right? It's, It's on God's time, and we have to be patient. We have to have faith and we have to be willing to accept the answer God gives us. Right. But the point is it's not, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be some kind of feeling or verbal answer that God is going to give you when you pray. God orders your life. God orders your path. And so, yeah, like Bo said, like if you, if you're trying to make a decision between two Christian colleges, it's not something you should agonize over. You should pray about it. If you've been praying and you've been, you're not just coming to God, like he's a genie, like oh, answer yeah. my wish for this. Yeah then you could choose either one of those colleges and be in God's will, you know, or he right. might providentially make one work out more than the other. And so, yeah, there are things we shouldn't agonize over. If you're walking according to God's will and you're walking in communion with him, then you can, then you're going to make correct decisions. You're going to choose decisions that line up with his will. It's not some kind of supernatural thing that always God is going to reveal to you. Yeah. R.C. Sproul does a, has a great series on the, the Ligonier app about vocation and how it's kind of a concept that we don't have anymore. And he, he makes a lot of the same points where he talks about, you know, you have people, he had, he had a guy at his church that uh, I don't remember what his vocation was, but he was very successful at it. And he, he came up to him and he said, I think I want to go into the ministry full time. I want to be a full time minister. And he's, what do you think about that? And Sproul said, well, I really hope not because you're one of the main people that are holding up our church financially <laughs> speaking. So let's continue to pray about this but that, that's that's the same kind of the same kind of idea that god you know maybe it's something that calvinists have a little better understanding of than non-calvinists i guess that god is he's ordering the circumstances of your life and the question is am i if if this decision or where i'm at right now if it's not in direct violation of of god's word of god's law then i need to just play it out to, to, to do it heartily unto the Lord wherever I'm at, to serve God where I'm at and let him order where I'm going to be. Not to say that you shouldn't have ambitions or desires or goals, but to understand that God orders those things and that he works those things out via circumstances. But again, that's that's something I guess Calvinists have a hold of that I, maybe, a, maybe non-Calvinists don't quite have the same grasp of. I don't know. Absolutely. I mean, God has complete control over all events, and it's not him being reactionary to whatever we're trying to do. We have to make ourselves be in alignment with what he is going to have happen regardless. But it's not to say that our intentions are irrelevant. God works through means. He works through us to reach his people. We're his bride. 
we're his helpmate and through us we're meant to reach out to the world and spread the gospel so it's not as if we're irrelevant but at the same time once you realize that god is in control and that things will work out for you regardless of what happens it should be more of is what i'm doing right yeah and as long as that's the case as long as i'm following god's commandments everything else will fall into place right and that assumes that you're walking with god right in prayer and that you are seeking his will and like you said following god's will is spending much time in prayer with him that is god's will that is what the bible tells us to do so yeah i really like this book i, I will each give a little summary here but i thought the book was great i mean it's in one of these books that i'm going to read again like Ryan said at the start, it's an encouragement. There are many things that I thought about during prayer this week that helped me to realize where I was, you know, deficient in how I was praying or when I was praying. And it was encouraging. It was definitely in some points convicting, but overall, it's a very encouraging book and has increased my desire to want to pray. Absolutely. That, that's the, that last point is the, the main thing that it did for me. I caught myself while I was reading this book. Basically, no matter where I was, whether I was, you know, where there were several times I read, I, I had a long shift somewhere where I didn't have a lot going on, and I read a whole lot, you know, a whole big portion of this book, and I caught myself at a certain point stopping just by reading them and thinking, why am I not praying right now, and stopping and praying, and so it, it I think for anyone who, like me, struggles and finds themselves inconsistent in their prayer life, and really seeks, you know, really wants to to better that, this book is a great encouragement. It's it's not something that that beats you down, that you know makes you feel like you're you know you're a worm because of it, but it encourages you and it, it will bring you to a place where you you want to pray more. You 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 read these words, you read these wonderful quotes that he has. Um, David McIntyre. I don't know where this McIntyre stuff came from, but it's clearly McIntyre. <laughs> but you you will find yourself with a greater desire to pray. So it's a it like Daniel said, it's a book. I plan to come back to, you know, many times throughout the year, you know, to, to kind of refresh my, my own desire to pray when I, when I see that waning in my life. And it's only, sorry, Ryan, it's only 120 pages, so yeah. there's no excuse not to That's read this true. book. I almost read it twice. That's no true. excuse. <laughs> Go ahead, Ryan. Uh, I agree with every, everybody as what they've been saying. Um, you know, look for a time where you can almost make this a routine, whether it be a car ride or you get home from work and you got five minutes or whatnot. What I wanted to end with is actually what the content of prayer should be. And I think one of the quotes from the last chapter summed this up for me. We Christians may ask our Father for all that we need. Only let our desires be restrained and our prayers unselfish. The personal petitions contained in the Lord's Prayer are very modest. Daily bread, forgiveness, and deliverance from sin's power. Yet these comprise all things that pertain to life and godliness. And that's all you need. Yep. Amen. And that is the end of this podcast. For the next one, we're going to be reading a book that I have chosen. It's called The Literary Structure of the Old Testament by David Dorsey. Look forward to that next month, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you or hearing from you. Thanks, guys. It was great. Yep, absolutely. Have a good night.